long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love. The government hug the government love. The government Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. With me today is my regular co-host, Cleveland Area Attorney and Republican Factotum Jay Carson. Good morning, Jay. How are you doing? Well, I'm I'm uh, better than a mayor of a sanctuary city uh, welcoming <laughs> a busload of Ill- illegal immigrants. <laughs> you did say you would work on that. I did. Uh, yes. I like it now. Now, of course, I'm going to expect a new one every. Uh, Every every time we do the show, so yes, the well, pressure well, is on. I will do my best to uh, uh, to oblige. Okay, well, we'll hold you to that. Well, of course, and that that kind of leads us right into what we want to start talking about this week. There's so much going on in uh, immigration, and so uh, I guess maybe the place to start is you know President Trump is said to have been and currently is, I guess, uh, incensed at his administration's inability to slow what's really a, a pretty impressive surge of Central American asylum seekers at the border. And so this past week, he decided to well, kind of clean house at the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, you know, Homeland Security Secretary uh, Kirsten Nielsen, who was really never been a Trump favorite, was forced to resign. And then Trump also withdrew the nomination of Ron Vitellio, who was his nominee to lead the Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE. And in both cases, it's clear that the president felt and, and actually said that he needed people who were willing to be tougher on immigration. And of course, you know, Trump has always been an immigration hardliner, but he's been pushed even more in this direction by National Security Advisor John Bolton and especially by senior domestic policy advisor Stephen Miller. And I mean, it seems to me, Jay, that at least in part, the shakeup at DHS is a move to kind of uh, de Kellyize the department. Of course, John Kelly, who's a Marine general back in the Back in the days when Donald Trump loved generals, uh, mm-hmm. he was Trump's first DHS secretary. And then when he moved to become Trump's chief of staff, a lot of his people actually stayed in top agency positions. And of course, Nielsen moved up to, to run the agency. So before we get into all the other immigration stuff, and there's plenty of it, what do you make of this uh, uh, DHS shakeup thing? I mean, is it kind of a rearranging deck chairs on the immigration Titanic or, or what? Um, you know, I think he's he's looking definitely for someone with more of a focus. The the job of Homeland Security uh, is is a pretty broad one. Right. And I think when that job was originally conceived, immigration wasn't one of the top responsibilities of that job. Right. It was it yeah. was sort of coordinating these other agencies that would that would fight uh, the war on terror. Um, so there, there's. I mean, I think it's a little bit of a you know square peg round hole kind of thing, um, but because uh, you know terrorists could infiltrate uh, across the border, um, uh, Homeland Security sort of you know necessarily has that that sort of responsibility too. So I, I think you know, look, it's it's he wants it to be something a little bit different than what it is now. Uh, I think you could have a you know some good arguments as to you know look was that. Is this responsibility best housed in Homeland Security or or someplace else? But um, it's it's his administration and his rules. Uh, so, um, well, you, you know, know think- on that point, Jay, it seems to me that what we see a regular uh, occurrence is that Donald Trump will want to do something and he'll say, go do it. And his people will say, uh, that's illegal. We can't do it. And he'll say, you're fired. I mean, it's, right. it's, the, the problem, it seems to me, really isn't the officials. Welcome, welcome to the private sector, Mike. Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, the problem, right, is that he doesn't have the legal authority to do a lot of what he wants to do. I, I yeah. mean, you know, I, I, take when this Wednesday he was in Texas and he said, you know, he wanted more troops at the border and apparently more are going to go down there, which he can do. But then he said, our military, don't forget, can't act like a military would act because if they got a little rough, everybody would go crazy. <laughs> I mean, well, he's, he's not wrong, is he? I mean, <laughs> well, no, and it would also be illegal, you know. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, if I just went and broke the law and then, you know, he's, he's maybe jokingly saying to uh, Border Patrol officials, hey, go ahead and break the law and I'll pardon you if you go to jail. I mean, no, oh, right. it was just a joke. But, yeah. you know, that it's it's just. And we, you know, of course, we've seen this with previous presidents as well. But uh, Donald Trump, as with so many other things, takes it to the next level. 
Well, here I think this is this is maybe it's 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 not unique to Trump. It's it's sort of it's certainly Trumpian and certainly a, a characteristic of his. But I wouldn't say it's unique. But there's always this argument of, of we ought to have business people running the government, and and sometimes I'm sympathetic to that argument because sometimes it, it makes sense. But it, there is a it's it, this is sort of that that tension or or that uh, again, square peg, round hole sort of thing. When you you've got someone who is a CEO of a of a company who is used to being able to say, "I want this to happen, just make it happen," right? Um, versus uh, someone who's in in government, which is it's just a different animal. Uh, there are different constraints, and I think Trump, uh, like a lot of CEOs, um, often doesn't want to hear, "You can't do that." Uh, what I think he wants to hear. And this again is a lot of those the way that the private sector tends to work isn't you know they don't want to hear I can't do that but but they'll you know what can I do give me a solution sure um, so I think there's there's some frustration there and he just he looks at this as look if these guys can't provide me a solution of of a way I can fix this problem um, I'm going to get rid of them and and I'll bring in somebody else and maybe they can. Well, and you know, um, I, I think though, Jay, that there is a solution and it's a pretty obvious one. It's to broker some sort of a deal with Congress. And of course, this guy was elected uh, claiming that he has these massive, incredible deal making capabilities. And yet that seems to be completely off the table. It's like the only the only people he's interested in talking with are Republicans who agree with exactly what he wants. And he's not interested in bending it all on this. And so there's a solution there. He is just singularly uninterested in pursuing it. Well, no, I don't know about that. Keep in mind, uh, you know, a couple months ago when we had the shutdown, there was the uh, he floated. Look, I'll give a, a limited DACA um, uh, sort of OK uh, in exchange for wall funding. And Democrats rejected that out of hand. So, you know, I, I think there's there's been those attempts to do that. I mean, I wouldn't say the that Demo Democratic good... House also just, I mean, recently had a had a vote, um, uh, you know, largely symbolic uh, about uh, allowing uh, illegal immigrants to vote in um, local elections. So, you know, I think I think there's just they're completely diametrically uh, opposed. And I'm not sure that, um, you know, that that there's any deal to be had and, and, or maybe at least not yet. And we're finally getting to the point where, um, uh, Democrats are acknowledging that there is a crisis on the border, right? I mean, we had, uh, how many months of, well, there's no crisis. It's really not that bad. It's really not a big deal. This is all made up. Um, there's no caravan. Uh, well, the, there, there are, um, you know, so I, I think that's, it's maybe he does get, uh, a, a, a it's at some point, but I think both parties really want this issue uh, for the 2020 election. So I, I don't I just don't think that's going to happen. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I do. I don't really think that Trump's offer back back then that you mentioned was a good faith offer, not along the lines of what, say, George W. Bush tried to do toward the end of his presidency. To me, that was a good faith offer. And there was a real effort made to work across the aisle. And it, of course, right. blew up, that turned out. Yeah. But but but. But it was at least a good faith offer. And, and, you know, before you go and do other things, I think it's sort of incumbent on you as the president of the United States to to reach out and make a good faith offer. But I mean, you're certainly I think it's fair to say that there are some Democrats who were late to acknowledge that this is a crisis. Now, that's not to say that Democrats in general say, oh, there's nothing going on here. I mean, you know, there are plenty of Democrats who looked at the numbers and, and just like me and said, well, yeah, this is a problem and it's a bigger problem and we need to do something about it, you know? So, but yeah, I think that the point, the run up to 2020 makes it difficult to see this sort of thing happen. And of course, should point out that when George W. Bush pushed his immigration deal, that was toward the end of his second term. And so sure. he <clears throat> was in a better position, certainly, to, uh, to do that than Donald Trump is now, who's understandably worried about immigration. Honestly, I, well, it's weird. I, I mean, I, I guess he does care about immigration, but I don't know if he actually cares about it in and of itself, as opposed to just this is the primary way he can show he is tough and, you know, supports his base and that sort of thing. Well, I, I don't know about that. I mean, look, this is this is the primary issue he campaigned on. Sure. Um, and he had a couple big primary, you know, like, here, here's the idea. It's a wall. 
Um, so, I, yeah, I mean, I think he, he certainly cares about it. And, and look, there's always sort of some mixed motives in, in any sort of, you know, public policy, political calculus, right? I mean, it's it's sort of, uh, look, this is this is uh, appeals to my base, uh, makes me look tough, and it may be the right thing to do, also. So, yeah. and I, I think he believes it's the right thing to do. Um, well, and yeah, I think you're I think you're right on that. I guess my concern is that in changing out these folks, he's just bringing in more and more yes people. I mean, you got now it seems like the immigration policy is essentially being run by. Stephen Miller, who who has made a career out of basically, you know, just trying to own the libs and this kind of he kind of reminds me in a way, Jay, of how I used to be in college, though I grew out of it, you know, and apparently Stephen Miller hasn't yet. But more and more of these people, I, I think it's important to have voices in there that explain to the president, you know, to give him some differing views of things. And I think Donald Trump just more than most other presidents is incredibly uncomfortable with that. And so, you know, he's like the anti-Lincoln in so many ways. There's no team arrivals going on there in the Trump White House. Well, I, I think, you know, it remains to be seen who he's going to appoint and who's really going to going to run. Tough um, people. Tough. They're going to be tough. People. Well, good. Well, good. But um, that's, that's the problem is tough is his only move. That's the only thing he knows. He's a one-trick pony, and it's not a very good trick, and it's not going to work. Well, because you know it, the law. Well, and maybe maybe what what's going to happen though is is when you get these tough people in there, they will um, make a better better point and and make a better demonstration of why the law needs to change. I see what you're saying. So kind of a Nixon going to China. So we find this horribly yeah. okay. Well, maybe that. That that's an optimistic I mean, loss, you know. I, and I think because we're probably going to talk about this at some point with my my joke at the beginning about Trump saying about welcome we send all these uh, illegal immigrants to sanctuary cities, um, and on the one hand that that is absolutely a hilarious idea, right? Right. Um, and but, it's but on the other hand, it, it's, <laughs> you know? it, it's one of these. Well, no, exactly. And you say, yeah, you can't just you know, but. It, to to most Americans, it strikes them as, look, you have a bunch of uh, Democrat uh, liberal mayors who say we're not going to enforce the federal laws uh, as to um, uh, immigration, and and you know we think it's an abhorrent what Trump's doing, and don't build a wall, don't build a wall. And he's saying, okay, here you go. Yeah, uh, he's calling them on it, but- and and that that may lead to the realization of, oh yeah, there actually is a problem here. Sure. Um, and and maybe that spurs some more efforts. Again, I think it's going to be really difficult to have anything like that happen during a, right. a run up to a presidential election, but we'll see. Well, yeah, and and from a legal standpoint, I'm sure you'll agree that uh, uh, when when government uh, when government agencies do something, they of course have to advance a legitimate governmental objective, and neither spite nor political retaliation are legitimate governmental objectives, right? So I mean, that, well, so yeah, I, yeah, but you could you could do a, uh, a you know. Look, you can probably um, go to uh, those those um, you know declarations of sanctuary cities, and they probably have all kinds of wonderful whereases clauses, right, and and findings uh, in those in those uh, local uh, ordinances uh, saying how important it is that that they welcome immigrants and so forth. And you could say, well, look, here's here's a here's a com- uh, doesn't have to be a compelling uh, reason; just has to be a rational one. Uh, these folks say they they really want to have uh, these immigrants here. The, it's it's a burden to other places that don't. Um, so I'll I'll go ahead and do it. Sure, and you you could do that to a certain extent. It's as long as there aren't other other greater burdens from you know shipping shipping people you know a further distance away and so forth and so on. But pretty clearly, Donald Trump's intent is not to you know make sure that these immigrants are are welcomed and comfortable and in communities right. that are comfortable. But he's, but he's, he's just but too- trying to. Stick his, stick his finger in the eye, these folks. You yeah. Know, so, but also, also to call out, call out um, the other side on on hypocrisy. Right, and you you actually think that's what he's doing? I think some people yeah. are saying, "Oh, come on!" I think I think that's a naive reading of Donald Trump, or at least a far too kind reading of Donald Trump. Donald Trump is, you know, the the famous counterpuncher. He just likes to hit back at people. He doesn't care if if the law or governmental jeopards or anything like that. And I think. And that's the fundamental misunderstanding I think people still make about Donald Trump, that he cares about anything other than Donald Trump. I just don't see any evidence whatsoever that that's the case. Well, and he cares, let's put it this way, he cares about winning. Yeah, right? uh, yeah. He cares about, about Donald, Donald Trump, Trump winning. winning. Yes, you're right. Absolutely. And, and to, to a certain extent, um, 
that translates into he cares about this immigration policy because he cares about Donald Trump winning on immigration. Okay, on that, yeah, absolutely. So, oh, so we talked about the sanctuary city thing. The other interesting development this week is that the U.S. District Judge Richard Seaborg in San Francisco uh, enjoined the very, I think, Orwellian-named Migrant Protection Protocols Policy, under which those applying for asylum could be forced to wait in Mexico while their claims were processed. And I think to this point, that's been applied to around 600 or so uh, folks. And in his opinion, Seaborg wrote that the legal question for him wasn't whether the MPP is a wise, intelligent, or humane policy, or whether it's the best approach for addressing the circumstances the executive branch contends constitute a crisis. His argument was that uh, the MPP most likely violates the Immigration and Nationality Act, the Administrative Procedures Act, and various other protections against immigrants being returned to uh, unduly dangerous situations. And he also wrote, I think this is fairly important, to be clear, The issue in this case is not whether it would be permissible for Congress to authorize DHS to return aliens to Mexico pending final determination as to their admissibility. And this gets to me right into what, you know, we were talking about just a few minutes ago is that there are solutions here, but you can't just make up your own laws as you go along. Executive authority only goes so far. And after a certain point, hey, Congress has to pass a law. And it seems to me that's exactly what Judge Seaborg's saying. Yeah, no, and I, I think I think Judge Seaborg is right on that. I, you know, I I would, yeah, you know, I could go the other way on the, um, you know, whether this violates the uh, the APA uh, or the uh, uh, immigration statutes. But um, keep in mind, I mean, this this has been sort of part of the problem um, with immigration is that we've got these statutes and we had either administrations that would refuse to enforce them. Uh, in some cases, uh, carte blanche say, I'm just not, you know, with the DACA program. Right, absolutely. Um, and then again, the, the the bizarre irony of Trump saying, okay, if Trump, if uh, Obama can, can you know, in, enact this DACA program under the, the regs, uh, if we have executive authority to do that, I have executive authority to undo it. And courts have differed on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's still playing out. Uh, but but it's sort of this this weird it's sort of a double standard I, I think that and a lot of Republicans are seeing this and I think this all plays in Trump's favor is that uh, well when there's a regulation that is uh, put in place by a Democratic administration uh, the courts are are very much in in favor of uh, we need to protect that uh, if it's a regulation that uh, his administration uh, pushes uh, or the repeal of a of a prior regulation. Uh, then it's that's an APA problem or violates the statute. Um, I mean, all this politically plays into Trump's favor. And and I think, look, I mean, he had a great week. And if he's, you know, uh, uh, again, I'm, I'm no disrespect to the judge, but I think that's sort of the, you know, if, if the judge is saying, oh, uh, you can't keep him in Mexico, I think Trump, Trump may weigh so well. Can we keep him in San Francisco? Well, I mean, I think yeah. that's not a bad question to ask, right? Well, I, and I see what you're saying from the political standpoint, though I want to point out from a from a policy and a legal perspective, it's it's if you push if you push the boundaries a lot more, you're going to get turned back a lot more by the courts. And I, and I would argue that the the way I see things is yeah, Donald but, Trump but is being turned back a lot more because he's trying a lot more radical stuff than previous administrations have. So it's not because it's not because uh, Obama judges are turning against Donald Trump out of partisan reason. They're just saying, hey, you're violating the law here, buddy. You can't well, just do yes, these arbitrary yes, and capricious yes and no, things. Though. Yes, yes and no, though, because, again, it's one of those. It's it's not arbitrary and capricious for the Obama administration to pass a rule, but it is arbitrary and capricious for the Trump administration. That's, that's wrong. It's a false equivalence, it. Jay. I mean, you're saying you're, you're saying that all of these things that the Obama administration, the Trump administration, doing are essentially equal, and so therefore the only reason to rule against them would be because of partisanship, and that's just flat out wrong. Well, I, I think I'm, I'm not I'm not sure why that. I guess I just don't don't follow why it's because if you do something that's if you if you push the boundaries, but it doesn't go over in the arbitrary and capricious. Well, then that should be okay. But if you push over and it is arbitrary and capricious, then and my argument is that it's not because Trump is a conservative. Not that he is, but not because Trump is a Republican, that these things are being 
turned down in greater numbers, it's because they're going far beyond the pale a lot more. Is that's why. I mean, your argument is saying that that the that the courts are just entirely politicized. It seems to me, and I just, no, no, no. I just, I'm not. Okay, I'm not making well, that. Okay. I'm not making that argument. Although, I would say there is there is something of a a Trump resistance at the district court level, right? And a lot of these get turned around once you get to the appellate court level. Is it a, um, is it a Trump resistance or is it a resistance to illegal activity by the president? I mean, regardless of who it would be. I, I, there's no oh, way I, I to really answer that question. A Trump, a Trump resistance, because as, as I just said, I mean, look, the, uh, when, when, when the Obama administration says we're simply going to choose not to prosecute under this law, uh, here's our new program, um, there's the, oh, that's, that's fine, that's great. When Trump says we are going to prosecute under the laws that are actually on the books, that's arbitrary and capricious. Well, so I mean, I, it I depends. That's, on, that's I, what I'm saying. I mean, it's. I think you're painting with a broad brush here. I mean, of course, you find your judge who you think is going to agree with you, and you you go to that person. But uh, and, and you know, you certainly you point out one instance in the Obama administration on that. Actually, sure. you know, I agree with you uh, right. that that it was. That's why I'm pointing that one out. Yeah. Right, but I'm saying in the Trump administration, there are a whole bunch of these things, and so my argument is essentially that Trump has gone a lot further in stretching, and I would argue overstretching, executive authority than, say, Obama did, and which is why he's getting slapped down by the courts a lot more. Okay. Although, I, again, I think he, he tends to be getting upheld as, as these things play out. But he hasn't. Um, I mean, but, 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 well, no, he was it took three the tries tra on the travel ban. I mean, if we, if well, we yes, take a look and, at and all he, the times he's been overturned by the courts, it's been a lot more than Obama. But, but the travel ban has been upheld. Right, the third time around, a, basically. A travel ban. Yeah, a travel ban. Not, exactly. not his original yeah. travel ban. Exactly. Okay, fair enough. Exactly. But he's still, got, he's still got a travel ban. Well, sure. Yeah, absolutely. You know, he found it right within, right within the, 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 uh, the law where he could do. He kept on pushing, pushing, and finally he found something that the courts would accept. Yeah, exactly. You know, but would so. you, I guess my question to you is, do you think that Donald Trump pushes the boundaries more than previous presidents, Republican or Democrat? Um, I I don't necessarily know that he does legally. No, I mean he wow. pushes the boundaries okay. certainly certainly rhetorically. Okay, okay. Uh, I I would say he he does. Uh, it certainly pushes the boundaries in terms of uh, the norms of what we expect presidents to say and how we expect presidents to act. Um, and he pushes the boundaries in the the manner, the, the alacrity uh, in, in which he acts. Okay. Well, let me, you know I, I mean? let me ask you this then. Let me try to put it into the level of uh, analysis of uh, level of data, at least. If I were to show you the, a comparison of the Trump administration and, say, the Obama administration in terms of how often they were overturned by appellate courts, and there was okay. a significant difference uh, meaning that Trump has overturned a lot more. Would you take that as evidence that Trump is pushing the boundaries more? Not necessarily. So what would be evidence? It depends. To you? It depends what, what, on. What, well, here's, here's the I, thing. You can't. I mean, I, I think I, just just saying just saying something like pushing the boundaries. It's a really that's a kind of a broad. Okay, doing more kind of illegal things. Right? How about that? I mean, because of course, when the court says you can't do it, it's because it's illegal. Well, let me maybe. ask you this. Is there any circ is there any data I could show you? Is there any under any circumstances would you be willing to say yes, Donald Trump is doing more things that the courts deem illegal than previous presidents? Because if there's not, then basically you're just arguing from faith and not evidence, and that's why I'm well, trying to get it. No, well, if you've got the data, I mean, send it to me. I'm, sure, I'll, I'll, I'll get the data on that. Absolutely, send me the data. I'll, I'll absolutely. That, but my my question was, even if I showed you the data, would you just say all oh, those liberal courts? I, I, in in some cases, I may, depending on on. I'd want to read the opinions. I'd want to read uh, uh, who wrote those opinions. I want to see how far along it it was in the process. Whether it's a district judge, whether it's a appellate court, whether it's an appellate court on banc, or whether it goes to the Supreme Court, those are all those are all important distinctions. Okay, yeah, absolutely, um, absolutely. So, uh, yeah. Okay, so I'll, you're not. I'll look at the data. Okay, all right. Well, then I will. Get I'm, but, but if you, if I were to send you data, um, of course, showing here, here's here's the the number of uh, regulatory actions that were taken uh under the Obama administration or, or things done by rule as opposed to by statute and compare those with other presidencies, would you agree that that the Obama administration, provided this is what the data showed, um was was much more 
activist in in essentially regular legislating by regulation. Oh, you have to show me the data. I have no question about oh, that. Oh, I know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I've seen enough of the data on that to just to know that that is that is almost certainly the case. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So, my job's going to be harder than your job on this, I guess. Because you know, I'm 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 already convinced of that position. So. Anyway, okay, to be continued. Uh, let's move on. You know, uh, another big story this week, obviously, is that uh, attorney, the attorney general, uh, I always call him, I want to call him William Barr. I don't know why I want to call him William Barr. But uh, anyway, right. uh, Barr, I guess, attorney general Barr, just to make it easier for myself, testified before, there must have been a William Barr. Anyway, before the House and Senate this week, ostensibly on budget issues, but really, I mean, it was a lot more about the Mueller investigation. Barr said, first off, of course, that a, redact- that a redacted report would be ready as soon as next week, and that while he could ask for an exception to allow Congress to see grand jury material, he actually wouldn't be doing that. Now, Democrats okay. in Congress could, and almost certainly will, take legal action to try and have you know, released at least some of what Barr plans to keep uh, redacted. Um, and Barr, in fact, said, hey, go ahead and do that. You know, I'm not I'm not saying you shouldn't and so forth. So that was like the, the smaller of these two issues. And I thought before we got into the spying thing, which I think will talk, take up more of our conversation, Jay, I, I thought you could maybe talk a little bit about the redaction thing, especially because one of the reasons, one of the big reasons for redaction is uh, this grand jury material. And while there right. is a way to petition a judge to allow at least Congress to see this grand jury material, the attorney general says he's not going to do it. And so maybe as an attorney, I think you're, you're in a better position than I am to talk about, you know, the grand jury functions of it and why we have this stuff redacted and why maybe it would make sense to do so in this specific instance. Sure. Well, and generally, and again, I, I don't, my area of practice isn't, isn't criminal law. Um, but, uh, that doesn't mean I don't know a little bit about uh, grand juries. Um, the idea behind a grand jury is that, uh, it can take as much evidence as as it can, right? Um, it is an investigatory, essentially, body, uh, and it decides whether there is enough evidence to to indict uh, and for someone to move forward with a prosecution. So, the idea behind a grand jury is those proceedings ought to be kept secret uh, unless there is enough evidence. Uh, to indict, and at which point uh, the evidence that is relevant to the indictment will come out at the trial. Uh, it, it is so that other people are not um, improperly tarred uh, as being, a, you know, a subject of a criminal investigation uh, if there is no evidence to charge them, or if they just happen to be sort of caught up and, and you know, sort of wrong place at the wrong time, or uh, you know, somehow sure. associated with. With this, so that's the reason for one. That's one of the reasons for grand jury secrecy. The other reason for grand jury secrecy is often the grand jury proceedings, and this one doesn't really apply so much here, as far as I know. Uh, typically, are are going on as the investigation's going on, uh, so that leaks of of uh, material that's being uh, presented to the grand jury could compromise the investigation if it got out. Right. Um, those are probably the, the the two big policy reasons. And the courts are are pretty uh, jealous in in protecting this uh, for for a number of reasons. I mean, I guess another reason is is you know people uh, protection of people who testify before the grand jury, right? Um, and again, that that may fall in the, there may be some issues on on something like this if you've got uh, folks who are confidential sources or involved in the intelligence community or uh, something like that. Um, you know, right. for for example, this is this is completely I'm completely making this up. I don't know anything. This would just be a, a complete hypothetical. Say, for example, uh, in the process of investigating whether there is collusion, um, where there was collusion between the Trump campaign and the Russians, uh, we were to reach out. Mueller was to have reached out to someone uh, who is an American asset in Russia, right? Someone operating secretly a spy of ours mm-hmm. in Russia, and, and ask, hey, what do you know about this? Have you picked up any intel on, um, you know, any any communications that would, would point to collusion? Um, that would be a really good reason to have that, that testimony redacted, not just from a grand jury standpoint, but also from an intelligence standpoint, um, which are the two, two big things we're talking about. Yeah. So, 
and that was the other key. I mean, the other categories of things seem to be basically around that kind of intelligence, national security. And I get those. But when you were you know, talking about the, the grand jury specific things that don't get into intelligence assets, national security, it seems to me that a lot of them don't necessarily apply nearly as much, at least in this specific instance. And certainly you can argue that there's a strong countervailing instance in Congress, at least having more of this information. So I wonder why then at least there couldn't be some sort of a compromise where some of this grand jury material would be redacted, or maybe the attorney general just feels like, well, Congress should be the ones to make that case and he shouldn't be. I don't know. Yeah. What do you, what do you think? Yeah, no, I think, I think that's, I think that's probably the, the way to, to do it. And if I'm, if I'm bar, I'm, I'm saying the exact same thing. Um, look, this is, this is not a matter of with the grand jury material. It's not a matter of, of bar releases, what he sees fit to release. It's, it's up to the court. Um, and Barr's position is essentially, look, if you want to ask the court to release some of this stuff, go ahead, but I'm not going to be the guy to do it. Right. Um, and, and I'm not going to be the guy to go make the argument of, of why this ought to be released. And if you want to make that argument, uh, you know, you know where the courthouse is. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's, that's a, a pretty reasonable, uh, thing. Also, I mean, if you look at the reasons, um, why Democrats want this released and, and I think it's not being conspiratorial, um, uh, it would be naive to say otherwise, but these, you know, Washington leaks a whole lot. And the idea would be you find something salacious and you leak it uh, sure. to embarrass someone in, in one way or another. And Barr, Barr would then be able to say, look, this wasn't me. Yeah, right. Uh, this, this is on you guys. Uh, you're the ones who made the case to the court that it needed to be released. And if it's if it's leaked, um, uh, we'll know where to look. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense to me, actually. Um, so let's move on to the. The bigger issue, because of course we're going to be talking a lot more about the the report and redactions sure. and so forth when this comes and, and out. And again, I think it's I think it's also important to at this point, uh, it it very much sounds like um, Barr, uh, everyone is going to redact as much as is feasible, right? As much as possible, and to the extent there is there is you know you you would err on the side of um, uh, of uh, non redaction. Uh, based on what everyone is asking for, so I, I, I think we'll we'll get a fairly unredacted report. I, you know, obviously I can't tell, but let's hope so. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so the bigger issue, obviously, from the testimony, was that when when Barr indicated that he believed that government spying occurred against the Trump campaign, and that he planned to look into whether or not surveillance against the campaign was legally permissible. Uh, more specifically, he said, "I believe there is a basis for my concern." But I'm not going to discuss the basis for my concern. Uh, I'm not saying that improper surveillance occurred. I am saying I'm concerned about it and I'm looking into it. That is all. Now, back when Republicans controlled the House, there were two committees that recommended that the attorney general launch an investigation. And it looks like now that that might happen. Of course, I should point out this would be in addition the investigations on this currently underway by the Justice Department inspectors general and also apparently by a specially tasked U.S. attorney. Um, now, in response to all this, uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said it's dismaying and it's disappointing that she that the chief law enforcement officer of our country is going off the rails. Um, now, I, I, I disagree with Nancy Pelosi well, on this. I was going to say, I mean, to be I mean, Barr's statement seems pretty measured, right? I think it's, you know, I think it's really the use of the word spying at first. And then he kind of, I think, realized that the import of that and kind of not exactly walked it back. But it seems to me, well, it you can't argue that spying, if you want to call it that, or surveillance didn't occur. We know that it occurred, right? So yeah. the only real question isn't whether it occurred. It's whether it was legally permissible. Whether it was correctly predicated, yeah. I think was, was Barr's word. Yeah. I mean, and yeah, well, of course you'd want to know that. I mean, uh, well, it seems to me that Barr is right to be concerned and he's right to look into it because if this is true, this is incredibly serious stuff. You know, if you have an intelligence Amen. community working for partisan purposes against the, the, a candidate, a party's candidate for president, I mean, that's that's huge. And right. You listening, Scott? Yeah. I mean, I, I said this from the beginning that, you know, the, the, the big problem I always had with this beforehand is 
Well, if the attorney general, Trump's attorney general, doesn't even think it's serious enough to look into, how serious could it be? So right. it seems to me that he does. And, you know, of course, he's a partisan and so forth. But I, yeah, I, I certainly think this is worth looking into. And it's not it's not William Barr going off the rails or anything like that. This is a this is a big deal, you know. Um, right. But I also think. It's important to keep in mind that a lot of people on the left saying, oh, my God, you know, Mike's going off the rails here. Um, but it's important to keep in mind that this was an incredibly unusual set of circumstances. I mean, if you're in the intelligence community, what do you do if you get even a, a strong hint that's, that it's plausible that the campaign of a major party nominee for the presidency might be working with a hostile foreign power? You don't just say, well, that's just a political hot potato. We're going to ignore that. I don't yeah. think there's any way to investigate that without ending up looking with without something bad happening. I just don't see it as well, being possible in a way, even though I think James you know, James Comey is a was a is kind of an unctuous, kind of holier than thou sort of person. I think he was right in the sense he was put in this kind of impossible situation, you know? And so it, it's a it's a tough, it's a real tough spot. And in part. I think it's a tough spot because if the Trump campaign really was entirely above board, they would have reported all Russian contacts when they happened and not, it seems like to me, actively sought out dirt from Russian people who may or may not have been connected with the campaign. Maybe that's inexperience. Maybe it's carelessness. Mm. Maybe it's incompetence. But maybe it's acting unethically, at least, if not illegally, though certainly, again, you know, 22 months of investigation, there's clearly not a case, a legal case to be made. But I think there certainly was reason to be concerned and to look into it. And I want to make that clear. All right. Well, so so let's talk though quickly about, I mean, the, the idea of meeting with the Russians. I think I think we'll see this when we get more of the, the Mueller report. Um, right, right. To the extent to which Trump sought dirt or to which to the extent the Russians tried to sell dirt that they perhaps didn't have in the first place. Um, but. Uh, uh yeah I, I think i think you're you're um you're absolutely right that this is this is a an extremely serious thing um and i think i pointed this out when when this first happened that the whole idea of um our intelligence agency uh tapping uh surveilling uh a, a domestic presidential campaign uh is extremely problematic um now as for what else could have been done i think there's a lot of things you could have done uh one would have been when you went to get the fisa warrant uh they could have disclosed oh yeah here the information we're basing this on we got from the opponent's uh you know camp <laughs> i mean I think that would have been a, a good thing to tell the judge um and then apparently they they didn't uh other things you could have done would have been notify People within the camp, uh, for example, you know, lawyers, Rudy Giuliani, former federal prosecutor, uh, you could have said, hey, we have concerns, um, you know, we and, and, and gone to the campaign itself. Um, they've done that in, in the past. Right. They did that with uh, Diane Feinstein when she had a, a Chinese spy driving her around. Um, but they, yeah, know, and so that's it's, a good it's, point. But, but they didn't show what I'm saying. They didn't yeah. show the same respect for Donald Trump and the idea as well. Because he must be doing this, but uh, again, to me, you've got to have an awful lot of a, a pretty, a, a pretty strong book of evidence uh, to go and and, and again, so this is something to also consider. Um, you know, we have a couple different systems in our country to surveil people. Um, one is you can get search warrants, you can get you know wiretaps and warrants for for taps that way. Um, but in, in order to do that, you go before a regular uh federal judge right. and and you get you have to essentially show that there's probable cause to issue a search warrant probable cause that some crime is being committed or it is likely to be committed um the FISA warrants are something different right Absolutely. and it's a different process yep. and and that's that's what's even a little more troubling is that look if they thought there was a crime there is a process for that doing that this is more to you know it is it's spying it's counter spying um, and there are there are, are good reasons um, to have FISA warrants because there are there are times when, look, we we would want to uh, intercept uh, foreign communications that that don't necessarily have to do with a crime, right? Yeah. We just want them because it's it's interesting intelligence wise. Yeah. Um, 
and that's part of our our intelligence gathering and that's what that's what states do um you know like it or not uh so i think those those are sort of the issues to me that 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 are, are red flags is you know if you had enough probable cause why not go to a regular court why not go to the FISA court why not disclose where you got the dossier um all that no and i um, i agree and and here's why i want well, I think an investigation by some, and this is the problem, an impartial investigation, good luck getting anyone to agree on that. But, but to me, you know, there's this, there's this narrative on the right. And there was a, there's a great uh, national review has done, had some great pieces on it this week. But uh, one that I think just sort of sums up the view on the right is that the author, I forget who it is now, uh, wrote, how was it that a garbage anti-Trump dossier gathered by an ex-foreign spy from shadowy Russian sources came to set so much of the media narrative about the Russia probe and evidently have an outsized influence on the thinking and actions of the FBI? And I think that's a great statement, not Amen, necessarily yeah. of reality, but certainly of the reality as question. the right sees it. And yeah. that's why I think these investigations can be helpful is if you can find uh, an arbiter that everyone trusts, like I think. I think Mueller is or was certainly, you know, I don't know, but yeah. uh, that that at least maybe this is me being naive, that if that comes out, then people can say, oh, OK, I guess it wasn't. And so I think there's certainly a very good possibility that if more of this comes to light, that uh, investigating authorities are going to say, no, that was that there were reasonable grounds to grant that FISA warrant. And it wasn't just all about this, this uh, steel dossier and so forth. Right. But my, my, my concern is that even if that happened, I think obviously just like with the Mueller report, there's, there's going to be a big segment of the population that just, that's not going to change their mind. It, the facts don't matter. It's what I know in my heart to be true yeah. matters. You know, well, if, if I'm, if I'm uh, William Barr, which I would love to be William Barr, <laughs> Um, or not William Barr or Robert Barr. I, no. I just did the same no, thing. No, William Barr. You, I did say, I don't know. There must be you, a Robert yeah. Barr. Is there a Robert no, Barr? No, there was a Bob Barr who's a congressman from Georgia. That's why we're doing it, Jay. Yeah. Yes. That's okay, it's William Barr. Yeah. yeah. Okay, that explains it. He has it. a goofy mustache. and. Yeah, okay. Okay, yeah. thank you. Um, anyway, if you're William Barr, go ahead. I've, I met, I've met Robert Barr. He's a very nice man. Huh, okay. Well, there you go. Um, but but anyway, <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I, now I would love to be uh, William Barr. Um, I would I would draw as much of, of my investigation from what's already ground already covered by uh, Mueller. Yeah. Now again, I, I haven't seen the report, so I don't know what's in there. But I think there may well be enough overlap um, for for him to to look at you know take some of the findings of of the Mueller report and weave those into this this other investigation. Um, and I think that's that's what he would do, hopefully, because that would build credibility uh, or ought to build credibility. Um, so, yeah, but, but we'll see. And again, those are sort of unknowns that we, we don't know yet, but I, I, I have sort of a feeling that, that the Mueller report is going to cover some of those issues, uh, and would be able to show how, how much of a, you know, probable cause to use the criminal term, uh, would have existed. Yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. So certainly we are not done with this topic by, by a long shot. There are a lot more things to come and, uh, we'll have, be having a lot more conversations on it, but until then, uh, before we get to our next story, we want to thank our newest Patreon monthly supporters. There's Jeff, Deborah, and also longtime supporter Dusty recently increased his monthly pledge of support. So thanks, all of you. That really thank yeah, you guys. It means a lot to us. And of course, you know, when you become a monthly sustaining supporter through Patreon, you get more than just Jay. Jay and you know, me saying, hey, thanks. Um, but that's you know something. You also get our weekly bonus show. And uh, there are a whole bunch of other things up there on uh, that supporters can get. Just go to patreon.com slash politicsguys or uh, politicsguys.com slash support. And you can check it all out. Thanks so much. All right, moving on. On Wednesday, the House of Representatives passed legislation that would restore net neutrality. That's, of course, the requirement that Internet providers treat all online traffic equally. Now, the measure passed along, well, mostly party lines. It would have restored through legislation what the FCC mandated by regulation under the Obama administration and then rescinded when Republicans gained the majority on the commission in the Trump administration. Now, this isn't going to go anywhere legally because Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said the measure was dead on arrival in the Senate. Um, but that doesn't mean that net neutrality is dead necessarily. Uh, now, for those who need that refresher, the ostensible rationale against 
net neutrality because it always seems to bad to be bad to be against any uh, neutrality, right? Um, but I'm against yeah, it. Yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> and, and the rationale is basically that removing this regulatory burden would lead to higher levels of investment in, in internet infrastructure, and also providers said they had no plans to discriminate. It wouldn't be in their best interest to discriminate, so just kind of trust them on this, that sort of thing. Um, I will point out that, because I have to point out that uh, FCC, uh, the FCC chair, Ajit Pai, who kind of led the effort to kill net neutrality, was formerly wait for it, an attorney for internet provider Verizon. Uh, that's probably not coincidental. But anyway, the point being is that there have been dozens of state attorneys general, tech companies, consumer advocacy organizations who actually sued the FCC to stop the net neutrality repeal. And a federal court heard arguments on that in February. And a decision, we should be getting a decision sometime this summer, but of course that will be you know, appealed as well. So it's going right. to be a while. But a number of states actually aren't waiting, and they've passed their own net neutrality protections. And there's one that was adopted in California in 2015. This was challenged in 2018 by the Trump Justice Department in a case that's still pending. So there's a lot going on here, basically, and everything is essentially still kind of up in the air. But Jay, you know, what do you think about this legislation? I mean, you, you mentioned just very briefly that you're against net neutrality. Why is that? Well, first of all, as a legislation, I think it's I think it's silly, um, uh, especially if if you consider because we had this conversation whatever two years ago yep. um, when it happened, and at, at that point, I'm, I made the point that listen, the non net neutrality has been sort of the the rule rather than the exception, right? You had, had no net neutrality throughout the big growth of the internet, the the, the boom years of the you know mid nineties. Uh, up through about it was about what 2015, I think the rules were put in place. Yeah, 2015. So, and again, this was you can tell what a priority this was for the Obama administration. President Obama, you know, elected in 2008. Um, that in 2015 they finally got these passed. Uh, and and again, it, it seems that there was this is a problem in search of a solution. Um, and the the cries from the, the left of this is going to destroy the internet. Uh, it's going to you know stifle all these voices. Um, well, the net neutrality rules have, have gone out of effect. They've been out of effect for well over a year. Um, my internet's working fine. Um, I mean, people were, were literally, this is, I mean, again, anecdotal, but um, for what my daughter tells me at her high school, you know, children crying that the internet was going to be going away um, because of the repeal of net neutrality. Um, and it, for the most part, I would say most people's experience has not changed whatsoever. Um, and, and I think it does make sense that, uh, you know, and, and the other weird thing about this is it's not like this big guy, little guy. It's sort of two big guys. It's the tech companies versus the um, the the service providers. Oh, I disagree. Um, that, I think there's a big little guy element because uh, under uh, a regime where there's no net neutrality, then smaller startup type firms wouldn't necessarily have the same access to internet fast lanes. Now, you're right that this hasn't come to pass. And I think that's the whole point of the legislation was to be proactive and make sure that we don't get in a situation where, because now we see a lot more uh, consolidations and so forth, and, and both vertical and horizontal consolidations, there's a concern that, well, why don't we just deal with this before it becomes a problem. And let's recognize the fact on the ground that the internet is essentially a, a utility at this point, which is how the FCC was able to regulate net neutrality. And so I think it was, you're right, that it wasn't a problem. That's why I see that this was good legislation because it was, no, because it was, no, it was preventing <laughs> something from becoming a problem being pro. It's, you know, the same reason why you, you go to the doctor for a physical or you, you do preventative medicine sort of things. I mean, that to me is the reason for it because the system has worked great under net, uh, under what essentially has been net neutrality because companies haven't done this and we'll say, well, let's keep it this way. Let's make sure that they don't, go in this direction because you're right it has been great my internet's been great i've been really happy with this and let's keep it that way i i mean i i'm i'm, I'm not even sure how i can how i can even argue against that but well that's um, that's that i'm glad you hear that i know you're uh, no I, i'm i'm just saying look if 
if this has not been a problem, if it, that that we ought not to wade into legislating things for the very reason that you and I often agree on, uh, unintended consequences. Uh, it's not a good idea to to wade into but it, but in, passing regulation when there's there's not a problem uh, well, weirdly, solved, or when when it seems like as if the the problem can be solved uh, by the by the market or the private sector. Yeah. And in most cases, I agree with you. But in this case, this is legislation that actually keeps the status quo in place. So it actually is conservative in nature. Then, so hmm. it's a very different thing because it's no, not. No, no, I mean, it's not changing anything. It's just saying we're going to keep it like it's been. Basically, so that I would argue is a fundamentally conservative piece of legislation, and so right. uh, Edmund Burke and I are for it. Um, anyway, let um, me let me just throw one more piece in because this was my my analogy that I used to try to explain net neutrality. Um, it's essentially that if if you say I have something that I would like, uh, if I'd like to mail you a letter, Mike, um, old fashioned wise, I would I would pay whatever thirty two cents postage, and if it would get there in a day or two. Now, if I have something that is is really more important uh, that I need to get to you right away, that has to be you know actual hard copy. I could FedEx it to you, and I could get it to you overnight. I'd pay substantially more, but I would know that you would get it overnight. And and people seem to understand that 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 makes that makes sense. Uh, also, would be look if I'm sending you a a letter or a package in, in FedEx. Uh, that's one thing. It's quite another if if I'm going to ship you a piece of furniture. Um, that's going to take a lot more resources uh, to move and to ship, and therefore you ought to be able to charge a higher price for it. And that's sort of what the the anti-net neutrality folks are saying. Look, if you are one of these large um, internet users, and it's mostly you're talking your Netflixes and 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 streaming services. Uh, we ought to be able to charge a higher price uh, to deliver those those bigger bigger packages, those those bigger pieces of furniture, uh, than we do just for you know some guys you know who's writing a blog in his basement. Well, I, and I think that's a great analogy, and it works awesome in you know the 20th century. But I would argue that electronic communication is for, for reasons that we probably won't have time to get into, it's just fundamentally different. And so that kind of 20, 20th century analogy of shipping physical physical things from point A to point B just no, doesn't really hold up very well. It's still the amount of big, it's the amount of data you have to send over the same conduit. And and the, the, the great thing is if you can monetize this and you can uh, charge more to some of these uh, streaming people, Netflix, now Disney, um, who wouldn't want to charge more to Disney? and what you're going to get is is more investment in high speed uh, internet as opposed to and I, look I think we could we could go on and on and make a big argument about the way the phone systems were set up as as utilities uh, before the baby bell before the bell breakup um, that how much you know how much further might be we be along communication wise if we hadn't had those regulations kind of hamstring us back then. Right. But that's for another day. Yeah, and I certainly agree in that case. But yeah, you're right. Probably for uh, probably for another day. Anyway, um, moving along, you know, a WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange was expelled from the Ecuadorian embassy in London this week, and then arrested by British law enforcement in connection with a U.S. indictment for conspiracy to hack into a government computer system. Now, this single count indictment is considered to be by a lot of legal experts to be a way to charge him that avoids those kind of very difficult freedom of the press issues. Now, right. he'll still have the opportunity to fight extradition, and this process is almost certain to drag on for a good period of time. But And it seems like there were two basic factors behind his expulsion from the embassy. Uh, number one, a change to a more moderate U.S.-friendly government in Ecuador, because um, it was a leftist uh, Ecuadorian president who kind of wanted to make a stand you know, make a, a stand against the U.S. that, you know, gave him th that in the first yeah. place. And yeah. also, and I guess this is no small thing, according to some reports, that, that Assange was a horrible house guest. I mean, like, <laughs> I mean, did this not strike you as bizarre, Jay? If you're there just by the sufferance of this country and you know you're going to be arrested, do you blast music at 1.30 in the morning, abuse the staff, and apparently <laughs> even spread excrement on the grounds? Yeah. I mean, what? What are you thinking? That's it. Sounds like somebody with mental problems. Serious. Um, well, I, I I think Julius Assange may may well have mental problems. Yeah. 
Um, but, but, you know, to me, the other part of this interesting is, you know, the Russian government, of course, decried what they had called, what they called an attack on press freedom, which it seems right. laughable from a country where, you know, opposition journalists wind up, you know, threatened, beat up and yeah. killed. Right. <laughs> and then Edward Snowden, safe and secure in Moscow, was similarly outraged. And I learned, I don't know if you knew this, Jay, but it turns out there, uh, the Guardian at least reports that there was a plan to have Assange join Snowden. Uh, as kind of a guest of that, you know, famous protector of the First Amendment, Vladimir right, Putin. Right. Um, apparently, Russian operatives had put up to put together this plan to exfiltrate him from the embassy and kind of spirit him away to Russia. But they abandoned it as being just a little bit too, a little bit too risky, low, you know, low, op- low chance of success right. kind of thing. But uh, yeah, well, what do you think, G? I mean, is Assange a, a journalist who's being unjustly persecuted for? Daring to challenge the national security state, or is it more like Mark War- Mark Senator Mark Warner uh, called him a direct participant in Russian efforts to undermine the West and a dedicated accomplice in efforts to undermine American security, or Mike Pompeo being a little more succinct, calling him the leader of a non-state hostile intelligence service. So, what do you think? Well, I would, you know, I I I think. Um... Well, the two people you quoted that I think are, are are correct. I although I think they maybe give him too much credit. <laughs> okay. Right. I mean, I, I think I think he's more a guy who's who's got some bizarre narcissistic kind of god complex. Yeah, I think that's we can, everyone can agree on that. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and I, I think he's 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 just nuts. And he and and whether and again to say he's he is uh, working for the Russians, I certainly think he is is aiding them, whether he's in doing it intentionally or just out of his own sort of bizarre worldview um i don't know but uh uh i think i think it's it's good that he is being indicted uh uh the u.s is probably gonna have to get in line i know there's also uh, sweden wants to indict on rape charges i think there's other british charges against him um he got uh, that, yeah, there's there's certainly in britain i know that the jumping jumping bail by going to the bail. embassy i believe i think the the sex charge might in Sweden might have been dropped, I believe. But I mean, it's 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 difficult because sort of stayed because they couldn't prosecute because he's in the Ecuadorian yeah. embassy. But, you know, yeah. to, to me on the is he a journalist or not? I think I have to come down and saying he's just an incredibly irresponsible journalist. So because I, and this is a tough call, certainly. And, you know, responsible journalists don't just release sensitive national security information that can get people killed they vet these right. things and he does he clearly seemed to have no concern for that so i think he's a wildly irresponsible journalist uh and sometimes he doesn't act like a journalist but of course here he's not being charged uh you know as a journalist exactly he's being charged right. for that which kind of seems like a ticky-tack charge of uh computer hacking but I think I believe I looked at the statute and I think there's a, a prison prison term for that anywhere between 10 and 20 years, depending on how what the charge is exactly. So yeah. um, if anyone needs to be out of uh, the public circulation, boy, this guy sure seems to be. And it's interesting to see the, you know, the partisan back and forth because he's been alternately a hero to both the left and the right, depending on who he's helping well, out. I, I don't know. know if you'd say he's been a hero to the right. He's been a hero to Trump occasionally. Yeah, the, I love WikiLeaks kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so, so yeah. I mean, it's it's hard to it's hard to paint him as a heroic figure. Certainly, I would say, um, if anything yeah. else. So, uh, there's there's an article that uh, one of the articles I read for before this week. Julian Assange got what he deserved, and that seems to me about kind of how I feel uh, about this about this whole case. But do you think he's going to end up? I mean extradited and serving time what's your sense i think so after after a while i mean it's gonna it's gonna take a while um but uh i i don't it's it, there i think there's a very a very weird dynamic that that in fact that trump said i love WikiLeaks now means that the left will no longer defend julian assange yeah, yeah. which is probably good and it, it sort of all all works out um, I mean, and, and there are still some people on the left. I mean, uh, the Intercept uh, is a big sure. Greenwald and those folks who basically it's that old Gore Vidal thing about it's all the national security state and we just need to unmask right. this whole thing. And in fact, that's, you know, the book that Assange was holding when he was arrested and that sort of thing. And and, you know, I don't think that those people, some of those people are completely nuts, but there are some of them who I think take it to a to a pretty extreme level, I would say. Yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. 
All right. Well, I think that about does it for this week. Although, of course, if you are a Patreon supporter, as soon as we are done with this, Jay and I are going to be recording the bonus show. And at least I know one of the things we're going to be talking about, very fitting, is why Congress isn't interested in making it easier for you to file your tax returns. So there's there's that. And um, there have been some other things we'll talk about as well. So if you're a supporter, that should be in your app by the time you hear this. And if you're not yet a supporter, again, go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash politicsguys, or just go to politicsguys.com slash support. Also, if you could subscribe to the show, that really helps us out as those sharing episodes, you know, let people know what you think about the show, especially if it's good, probably not if you think it sucks, you know, but anyway, leaving ratings review on iTunes or whatever podcast app you happen to be using also really does help. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Bruce Johnson, Will Moreno, and Benji Fishman. Today's show was produced by me, Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Wednesday. We hope you join us.